work. The time's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Democracy Forum with your host Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters is up next. Good morning. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the fourth program in our series this year to be broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about fake news. Who can you trust? We'll talk about the proliferation of news sources in the Internet age, the role of independent journalism in a liberal democracy, and the challenges for citizens in finding real news. We'll be talking, taking your calls during the second half of the show, so stand by to join the conversation. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host today for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guests. Joining us in the studio today is John Christie. John is the co-founder and senior editor for the Maine Center for Public Interest Reporting. His career spans 40 years in four states as an award-winning writer, editor, general manager, and publisher for newspapers owned by Tribune Company, Dow Jones & Company, and the Seattle Times. In June 2009, he retired after nine years as the president and publisher of Central Maine Newspapers, which publishes the two daily papers, the Kennebec Journal and the Morning Sentinel. He went on to found the center uh, into retirement. So welcome, John. Good to be here. Thanks, Also with us in the studio is Naomi Shalit. Naomi is the co-founder at the Maine Center for Public Interest Reporting. She has written for magazines and newspapers around the country and in Maine and worked for five years as a reporter and producer at Maine Public Radio. Her radio reporting, editorial writing, and investigative journalism have won many awards, and we're pleased to have you here today, Naomi. Delighted to be here. And joining us by phone is Melissa Zimdars. Melissa is Assistant Professor of Communications at Merrimack College in North Andover, Mass. When she's not researching and teaching, Dr. Zimdar spends time working on opensources.co, a project that navigates fake and otherwise misleading news websites. Last fall, she gained some notoriety when a public Google Doc that she created to help her students navigate false and misleading news stories, clickbait, and satire drew so much blowback that it had to be taken down. Welcome, Melissa. Thanks for having me. So let's get started. Author and journalism Naomi Wolf is quoted as saying, it's not the lies that count, it's the muddying. When citizens can't tell real news from fake, they give up their demands for accountability bit by bit. What are the global trends that are affecting journalism and news in the Internet age? Are these trends threatening democracy as we know it? What difference between fake news and news with a liberal or conservative point of view, and does that matter? How can citizens keep abreast of these trends and find reliable sources of fact-based information if they want it? We'll explore these questions and more on our show today. Melissa, I'd like to start out with you, if you don't mind, and just ask you to relate your experience in after the November election with your public Google Doc Yeah, so I created the Google Doc because I was concerned both with what I was seeing in my Facebook feed, even from fellow professors or journalists. I feel like the quality of news sources was not as good as it once was. 
And I had once been fooled, actually, by a fake news piece myself. And then similarly, in the classroom, my students were struggling with analyzing digital sources for assignments and in-class discussions. So I created a document that we would go through in class to help us figure out if something was satire or fake or misleading um, or just, you know, from a political orientation. And so I put this on Facebook and I eventually switched it to public when a lot of my friends were like, oh, we should share this and build up the resource with more sources. And it kind of went from there. And it's been both celebrated by actually a lot of journalists and librarians and fellow professors, but of course, many of the sources, the news organizations included in my list, were not happy about it. So it was temporarily taken down until it could be hosted somewhere other than my Google Drive. Did you get personal messages from those sources and from their readers that um, objected to being categorized in a certain way? Yes. So I received thousands of emails, really, in my email inbox. I actually have a folder of almost a thousand unread messages because most of them, they were very positive at first. And then once these um, organizations started reporting on the list, they actually encouraged their readers to let me know how unhappy they were. And that took the form of, I mean, basically harassment, um, people telling me I should die, that they hope my family dies. Um, pe- people were calling my students, my colleagues, oh, and golly. they had nothing to do with this. Yeah, so it, it really spirals out of control to the point where um, my school was even like, should we, do you want to stay in a hotel for a little while? Because my personal information was being circulated. And to me, and what my students thought when I was, you know, they caught on to all of this, was that it really proved to them why those websites were on my list, if they would encourage their readers um, really not to engage in discussion, but to attack and try to stifle my speech. Mm-hmm. So it kind of it kind of proves my point in a sense. My, my goodness, how have we gotten to this point? Jen, I know you've had a recent incident or anecdote with fake news. Why don't you tell your yeah, story, too? Well, well first, I want to I want to thank Thank you for what you've done. I'm sorry that was a reaction because it was a great service and I, I used it myself. Yeah, I'm on, um, I live in the Augusta area and, and I'm on Facebook. I have a lot of friends. And um, I want to table this, this one friend and tell you what happened. He's, this friend of mine, I'll call him Al, is widely known in the Augusta area as the most generous, decent man in the whole area. If there's a charity, he's there first. If you need a truck because he has a business to move your furniture, he brings his people over. He does it for you. He's, he's, clearly a really good man. He's a good employer. Everybody likes working for him. He's a fr- uh, and he's a conservative. So he's on Facebook with me, and I see a story one day he puts up, and um, and all these reactions to it. And the story says that a, a, sta- a state senator in Vermont has been proposing a law that people who have guns should be arrested before they commit a crime, not after they commit a crime, because the fact that they have a gun, said this news story, proves that they're going to commit a crime eventually. And and my friend believed it, and all his other friends came in and responded to it. Yeah, can you believe those liberals? I'm not surprised it's in Vermont. But I'm using it liberal because for example here, but it's not this isn't political, it's just a good example. It happens on both sides. And I looked at that and first I said Vermont senator, you know, I know this such you know, this a little bit of it seems like it might be might be true. But right away I thought, no, I've seen this before. I saw a lot of this with uh, Michelle Obama, things that she was doing that didn't, you know, that looked like news that weren't news. And um, 
you know, as a journalist, we have this built-in detective that tells us when something's wrong. We're supposed to. Unfortunately, a lot of journalists don't have it anymore. And, you know, too good to be true. It, it confirmed their bias, um, and it seemed unlikely. I don't, you know, they may think that liberal Vermont uh, senators do these sorts of things, but anybody who follows the news and follows politics knows that, that this is highly unlikely to happen. So the first thing I do when I see these things is I, I go to Snopes.com. People probably know about and it's really a good site. I've been using it for, for many, many years to check out hoaxes. I think Snopes started years ago. Uh, debunking the alligators in the sewer stories in New York. Uh, everybody believed that there was a whole bunch of alligators in the sewers, and that was urban myth. They started debunking urban myths, and now, that, now they're debunking news stories, and they'll give you false, true, or unknown. And this was completely a uh, fabricated story. Uh, I give somebody credit for, for imagination, and it got people who have that bias seeing, seeing what... Uh, what they wanted to see, so I, you know, it's it it's just all around there, and so many people are believing it, and I I don't know how to how to transfer this sense of skepticism that that journalists have or are supposed to have to the public because they don't have it. Yeah, I mean, how need- how did we get here? I mean, you know, free press has been a protected. Um, constitutional right. It's the First Amendment going back to our founding. Um, what did the founders? think the free press was it was it anything like what we know today is the press it was wilder it was crazy the pamphleteering that was going on it was the worst billingsgate and lies about candidates parties you name it i think it was jefferson who who i'm pretty i'm sure that who who planted false stories about adams uh there were sort of rivals and friends at various points so it was remember the first amendment covers all our freedoms and mm-hmm. uh, not freedom of speech freedom of assembly freedom of religion so these were clearly we all know this is why our country you know why we had people coming here they wanted to express their religious beliefs and one led from the other and the, the press was wild at the time and i think the feeling was and it's always been this if we have a hundred ideas out there that there's a faith in democracy you know you can't fool all the people all the time someone well known said that uh that this would actually be the case that eventually we'll, 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 we'll siphon through all this and enough people will get what's likely to be the truth to survive as a democracy. And um, we've made it quite a ways, but I can see why people are worried about it now. Uh, you usually have your Mao quote right now. Which is let a thousand flowers bloom. I'll say to him the one yes. the one thing you said I agree with. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the point here, um, and John and I were were talking about this when we came and spoke to the League of Women Voters a couple of weeks ago, is that the onus to determine what is true and legitimate and verifiable is now on the reader and the consumer of the news. You have to educate yourself about what the standards should be, about how something um, should be presented and with what degree of verification, and not fall prey to your own confirmation bias that if it feels right, kind of sounds right in your own ideological, to your own ideological bent, then okay, I'll, I'll believe it. I mean, I'll let you jump in here on this, Melissa. I mean, it sounds like from our founding, the right of a free press meant the right to pamphleteer, to mislead, to um, politically sabotage your opponent. And some of that is still what's going on now. Um, so how how is it different now than it might have been then in your mind, Melissa? Yeah, so I think the major differences, because I completely agree, looking at the history of journalism, we've had fake news 
even since news as we know it has been around with, you know, Hearst trying to sell wars to or create wars to sell papers or the tabloid press. And I think one of the differences today is that, of course, with social media, um, this kind of information can spread much more quickly and can be created in some ways much more quickly than in the past. So there's a speed that we didn't really have before. Um, also, social media, in a, in a maybe not so great sense, democratizes information. When something shows up on our feed, it looks a lot like news. So a fake news site like the Denver Guardian, when it appears on Facebook, legitimately looks like news. And studies show that most people are now getting their news from social media. So social media acts much like a news aggregator. And so if we're not doing some of the due diligence that um, the other uh, participants were talking about, then it can lead to further spreading that. And this news is specifically designed um, for spreadability, much like actual journalism increasingly has to be designed for spreadability. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting because it seems like there was a period, you know, I think back to my own child and in the mid-50s, Walter Cronkite, when most of the news we consumed was mainstream news. But it sounds like that period when professional journalism and mainstream news dominated our channels was just a little brief interregnum between the Wild West on the before side and now the Wild West on the after side. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. And I think you can really look starting in the 1980s when we started, or really in the 70s when news was expected to generate an ever-increasing profit, even Mm -hmm. though news really isn't that profitable or, or in my opinion, shouldn't be. Um, And then with the rise of cable news, you started seeing a different kind of of partisan reporting because partisan reporting has always existed. And I think it has its role in a democracy for sure. Um, But you started seeing this reporting that was relayed as basically news or objective journalism, which I'm, you know, you could put that in scare quotes because that has some own some of its own issues, but there was a line blurring between punditry and opinion and news. And I think, um, or at least a lot of the people I talked to, it's increasingly difficult to determine, you know, even within the realms of credible news, whether something is news, opinion, etc. Or analysis. And so I do think right. there's, oh, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say news, opinion, or analysis. I mean, those are three different categories yeah. here. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERUFM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is fake news. Who can you trust? Our guests this morning are John Christie, co-founder and senior editor for the Maine Center for Public Interest Reporting, Naomi Shalit, co-founder at the Center, and Melissa Zimdar's assistant professor of communications at Merrimack College in North Andover, Mass. John, you wanted to jump in about the... Uh, well, first, I, I, I like a lot of what you said, but let me make a point. It, it, it's, you said something about profits. It's really important for the media to make a good profit. I will tell you why. If you have a good profit, you're not susceptible to one advertiser pushing you around. And if you don't have a good profit, you can't hire enough people to do things, to put out newspapers, to go to go to city council meetings. So the fact that we're not doing a good job covering basic news now is because newspapers aren't making enough money. And it, it, back in the days, we all liked the news. To get into the news business, it was you could get into the news business. There was no prohibition against everybody in the news business. You just had to have enough money to buy a big iron press or have enough money to start a big network. So money kept you out of it, and, and uh, that's why we had fewer, fewer 
these types of media going on. Although there were many more newspapers, the newspapers hit the peak at about 1,800 daily newspapers, we're now down to about 1,300 newspapers. And of those newspapers, they're all about half the size in terms of their staff, new staff, they were, were at one time. I trace all this back, again, like, as you were saying, to cable. And it wasn't, even before they got into the punditry and news getting mixed up, and that's a very important point, they got into, if it bleeds, it leads. And, and the cable TV stations found out what sort of news got more people watching. And TV could get ratings. So they had immediate feedback, or relatively immediate feedback, of what sold and what didn't sell. And the more it sold, the more they could charge for advertising, etc. Newspapers never had that ability till we got well into the Internet age, and you could get metrics. And once we started losing business on the one hand because of all the factors, including a big recession and the debt journalism went into, on the other hand, we found out what people wanted to see or what they would respond to in terms of clicks or eyeballs or whatever. Those were the factors that really pushed us towards um, doing the, the poor job we're doing now. And I think it's important, uh, Melissa, you mentioned the the melding and the mixing up of opinion and fact in, in journalism now. Um, those of you sitting at home with your laptop or your computer, those of you at work who are listening to this instead of doing your job, take a look at the New York Times homepage right now. And right on the homepage, you'll see there is a news story on the left-hand side, maybe a news story kind of in the middle at the top of that homepage, and then a world of opinion on the right-hand side with headlines that sound sort of newsy sometimes. And what you've got now, which was never the case before, is opinion is given the same level of importance as news. And that's one of the real problems that we're running into, both in a place like the New York Times, which will label something opinion, but I'm not sure every reader is aware enough to recognize when something is opinion and something is fact. Um, but also there's a serious problem in the fact that because opinion sells so well, it's creeping daily into reporting, both at a, an august institution like the New York Times, at CNN, which, which really promotes its anchors and its reporters being emotional and reactive and, and making value judgments. So this is a terrible thing that's happening, isn't it, General? Um, so, you know, that blurring of the lines between the kind of sacred duty of the reporter to uh, report what is actually going on, and the opinion page and the opinion side of the operation, which is to provide you with different perspectives, which should be balanced and sourced and not wild-eyed and crazy, um, That's that wall has come crumbling down. Well, it's interesting because probably partly because of the work that you've done, Melissa, I've noticed mm -hmm. that um, the Borowitz report now labels itself not the news um, and for our readers, the Borowitz Report is a satirical site, which was commonly believed to be news by some people. And so now they've said, okay, we're not the news, just so you're clear. But, um, <laughs> you know, some of these reputable outlets have begun to say news, analysis, opinion, satire, whatever. But many, many, many others are not taking that responsibility, are they, Melissa? That's true, and I can think of a couple other examples that, that further make the situation um, difficult. And up until recently, even if, for example, the Washington Post had an opinion piece, and when you clicked on it and went to their website, it would say opinion, um, what would show up on social media 
the headline wouldn't specify that it was opinion. Right. And so if you're seeing opinion headlines circulating, that leads to those perceptions of bias because people might read it as actual news. So part of it is a labeling issue with, you know, the dominant way in which people are now getting news. And another problem is also sort of the lack of clarity that others are talking about. So on Forbes' website, for example, they also publish articles under the banner community posts. And it's totally not clear, or at least it wasn't until recently, that people publishing under that aren't going through a fact-checking process. They're not being revised or edited the same way that most traditional news organizations would. And so it's just a way for them to create a lot of content basically for nothing um, and generate advertising revenue um, in a new way. And I think that also leads to confusion over over what can be trusted, what is vetted, et cetera. Well, and and, um, being... Having a political point of view does not necessarily mean that journalistic standards are not being adhered to. You know, we've talked before about the Weekly Standard, which is a very conservative outlet, but says it's adhering to the facts and is using professional standards in its journalism. And we've talked about Mother Jones on the other side, which is a very left-leaning paper, but which is also um, widely recognized as being a top journal clearly with a point of view but it doesn't necessarily mean that the story you read can't be believed does it no, no exactly yeah, yeah you yeah, but Go ahead. they're they're honest about their framing let's use that word you know you know the national view of the mother jones that that the people who wrote those stories begin with an ideological bent or an agenda or they, they're advocacy journalists and then their reporting is either reliable or it isn't and those two publications have been around a long time uh, and so you learn to to rely on them primarily. I would still read anything in which a, a bias isn't even admitted. I would still read that with a skeptical point of view um, because it's just it, it really is. There's a there's a thing in journalism which always disturbed me, which is the idea this is this idea that is not official, it's unofficial, that your job is to afflict the comfortable. And I've never agreed with that point of view. I don't know why it's the fact that someone is comfortable requires us to 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 uh, put them in a bad light one way or the other. But that is a, is a framework in which a lot of journalists begin. If someone is successful, if someone is well off, uh, if someone owns a business, they're beginning uh, a suspicious point of view. If someone is poor or suffering from some sort of malady or, or, or is a victim or claims to be a victim, then the story must be framed in their favor. And uh, there's, there's more of that in journalism than the opposite. And I think the in some way, that is that problem which we had in, in a modest way in journalism in a, it is one reason why we got the right-wing media because it was a reaction to this slightly left-leaning general approach that journalists were taking back in the 70s and 80s. I mean, is there an easy way for readers to tell whether outlets are adhering to professional journalistic standards? And it's not to say that the New York Times or anybody else can't slip up. I mean, we've got the famous Judith Miller example where they just printed something that was not true. But, um, you know, is there a way for the ordinary reader to curate when they're reading it? This is a, a, a journal that adheres to professional standards versus one that does not? Or is that something that you have to really dig in and research? Well, I think that um, 
let's let's actually take bite a piece of that off, which is the increasing reliance on anonymous sources and stories, particularly about politics. And so any reader who reads stories that have multiple anonymous sources, in fact, almost no named sources, if any, um, should be highly skeptical of the truth of that story. Um, and one of the things I, I've taken to saying to people is when you're reading stories about Trump and how terrible he is and how terrible Bannon is and how terrible McMaster is and how terrible, you know, these various people are, but no one is named in the story as a source. Would you think differently about that story if you knew that it was Jared Kushner who had fed it to a reporter? Would you suddenly say, oh, there's a point of view that's pushing this story. And there's no way for you to independently, through what you're given in the story, verify it. So it's, it's a lazy way of doing journalism. It's um, sort of access journalism where, you know, I think reporters even get excited that they can have unnamed sources in their stories. And it is second rate in what, my opinion. Yeah. Let, let, let Miss, Melissa jump in on this question of professional standards. I know you've got a lot to say about it no, too, John. So. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with everything that's been said. And I was thinking of recently, I've been doing some workshops at high schools in my area about how to evaluate sources. And even high school students were noticing certain standards that were subpar on, on questionable news sources. So, I mean... Even the language that's being used, I mean, of course, I think in a contemporary moment, we're maybe seeing a little bit stronger language than we might or, or seeing the word eviscerate or slaughter in a news headline. Um, but in, in sources that I think, you know, might not be following the same kinds of ethical guidelines or even style guides, you wouldn't see such loaded language. Um, and I also agree you would, wouldn't see just cloaked unofficial sources constantly. Um, also, if you're like reading a news website, when you see all caps and multiple exclamation points, no editor or publisher for a credible news organization would be like, yes, that's, that's what we want to do. That's how we're going to convey a nuanced message. So I think there's even some, some visual or fundamental elements of what you're reading that can, that can be like clues for the, for the reader. Go ahead, John. The short answer to your question is no. Uh, there isn't any way. Uh, we do have a code of ethics in our business. The side of professional journalists is an excellent code of ethics. Uh, I read it all the time, and I read the media all the time, naturally. And it's, it's, it's not followed. Anonymous sources, especially bias admission, is especially not followed. I was listening to NPR the other day, and there was a report from Syria and uh, in which they interviewed victims of uh, what was going on over there. And they reported that they couldn't use their names because these people feared for their lives. And I went, oh, now, there's a reason to have an anonymous source. It ought to make everybody in Washington and the state houses embarrassed to hell that they're using anonymous sources at, with an excuse, with no excuse whatsoever, when the really reason for anonymous sources in Syria makes sense. People's lives are at stake. Why are those people being anonymous? I, I, I blame both the sources and the journalists. We've allowed them to do this. And Naomi mentioned this thing, access journalism. Let's talk about that for a second, which people don't understand what goes on in Washington and the State House, particularly. It's a deal. There's an unspoken, if not spoken, deal between the top reporters and the top politicians that they will use each other. And that is never told anybody. You just have to watch that and see it. So many of these books out, um, 
It's a book that the Atlantic writer did about politics about two years ago. It was all anonymous sources. We couldn't read it. I forget, Naomi. Yeah, and so do I. Yeah, uh, but there's one out now about the Clinton campaign. and uh, Yeah, about the Clinton campaign. It's all very exciting, all kinds of great gossip. And the reporters say, we we did this story. We told everybody we interviewed, we will not use their names. So how can I believe that book? Everybody's got their own axe to grind in that. So we are... We are we are part and parcel of what's of what's going on and how we are ruining our own business, our own credibility. What's going to happen? I think a lot of journalists now feel the job is to is to get Trump impeached or get him taken down. And if they can take him down with the facts, then that's good journalism. But I think a lot of them want to take him down no matter what because they feel it that it was their responsibility that he got elected and not the public's. And whether you agree or disagree with that, and I disagree with that approach, what's going to happen afterwards? We're going to go back to then reporting the next president who we like, a little bit more credible. No one's going to believe it. We're mm. selling our credibility, and we'll not be able to get it back. Yeah. At this point, I'd like to invite listeners to join our conversation. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are John Christie, co-founder and senior editor for the Maine Center for Public Interest Reporting, Naomi Shalit, co-founder for the Center, and Melissa Zimdars, assistant professor of communications at Merrimack College. Our topic today is fake news. Who can you trust? If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation now by calling toll-free 866-625-9378 or 469-0500 if you're calling locally. We have only one listener line open So be patient if you get a busy signal, and if you do get through, please state your question or comment um, briefly so that we can get another caller on the air. Don't wait until the last minute. Get your call in early. So I want to pick up where we left off about the reliability of news, and I think it used to be that um, our local newspapers and local reporting was the most trusted um, of all of the media outlets, people loved their local paper and knew who the reporters were and really believed in what they read in their local paper. And, of course, if you, as you said, John, those papers have shrunk and shrunk and shrunk till sometimes all you can believe is the obituaries. But um, I recently have seen something posted on Facebook where the little bit of this two mains thing was playing out because people in northern Maine – believed the Bangor Daily News, but mistrusted the reporting in the Portland Press-Herald and vice versa. And I wonder if this corrosive effect of who can you believe is starting to trickle down into our local outlets as well. I think we're one world now, and the Internet has made us that way. So I don't think this is something that is limited to, you know, elite institutions in elite suburbs and elite cities. I think the credibility of the news um, has become a, a singular issue for everyone. And what we haven't talked about is what the real role of the news is supposed to be. And it's our understanding um, from looking at the history that the the what you want your press to do is to report on the records of um, government institutions and figures so that you, the people, can hold those institutions and figures accountable. You elect them, you appoint them, however they get there, they represent you. And the way you know, the way you learn about what they've been doing so that you can unelect them or keep on electing them is through the press. 
And that's the fundamental role. It's not – we just what, – what was the story in the Wall Street Journal on the way up? Um, that uh, wealthy um, teenagers are now getting $40,000 closets built for um, their clothing collections. Now, that's, that's a story in the Wall Street Journal. That's not why the press um, exists. The press exists to do the accountability reporting that democracy needs. You want to jump in, John? Well, yeah, the – I can I, I believe what you're saying about local reporting when it was done well. When I was a young reporter in Gloucester, Massachusetts, um, the paper would come out around 11 o'clock, and around 11:30, quarter to 12, I would go downtown to have lunch at Harry's Deli, and and, and people would order the paper, and they ro- they drive by in Main Street in Gloucester, roll down the window, and tell me what they thought of the newspaper that day. <laughs> you got it right, John. You got it wrong, John. I you know I got I I was accountable, and the local editors and local papers have been accountable, whereas the people. You can imagine what report, what members of the public, the New York Times and Washington Post and Wall Street Journal reporters see, just people just like them who are part of the system and part of the process. So they're out of touch with, with their readers. Unfortunately, what's happened to local news is that, it, that, that uh, the number of reporters have declined. They're, it used to be, as, 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 as we were saying earlier, that things got checked at, we used to, we call it the desk, which is where the people who checked on the reporters sat on the desk, a desk, the copy desk. And there's, I, reading the papers now, I can tell that there's either no one at the desk or one person at the desk whose job is to shovel stuff into the paper without looking at it. Because we always make mistakes in this business. I don't, I don't get only critical, but the number of mistakes and errors and lack of syntax and grammatical sense in news stories now is extraordinary. And that's because there is no one checking on them. We have, do you have a caller on the line, John, from Orland? You're on the air. Go ahead. Yeah, there's so many things to talk about. And, no and thank you very, very much for uh, for bringing, bringing these all up. By the way, Barowitz's story on March 4th was printed by Xinhua in China. And uh, that was uh, <laughs> really a coup for him, probably. But, but that's where they started to really make a big deal about, hey, this is not news. Um, primary sources, a lot of stuff that's in the media, which is where young people get their news now, they watch or they listen to people uh, at a location, and they don't get primary sources. They get the reporter locally saying um, what is said. Very, very rarely do you get primary sources, and, and that's a problem with uh, with uh, news coverage nowadays. Also, satire, daily shows, uh, John Oliver, all these things is where people nowadays are getting their news, whether it's straightforward or satire. That's where a bulk of stuff comes from, and I just wonder, could you comment on that? Melissa, what do you think? Well, one thing with satire, actually, or The Daily Show, is studies in communication um, actually determined that people who watch those programs tend to be more informed than non-watchers. And, of course, this is a, a chicken-or-the-egg scenario. Are more informed people likely to watch the show, or do they become more informed by watching them? Um, and so it's hard to determine whether it's a replacement, but it does seem to have a positive impact on overall um, sort of understanding of political and social issues. And so I think that I'm not willing to write off those sources, and I think there are other alternative ways of conveying information that can be successful. Um, but I do think it adds another layer to the discussion today over what we consider to be news. If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation now by calling toll-free 866-625-9378 or 469-0500. Where do Macedonian hackers and bots fit into this whole conversation? (laughs) 
That's a good question because I think they fundamentally altered even what we considered fake news to be. Um, a couple years ago, if you looked in the library database for fake news, um, and scholarly sources would be referring to satire and The Daily Show, or they might be talking about tabloids, the, the kinds of magazines or um, news magazines that you would pick up in the grocery store. And so the Macedonian teenager uh, situation has, has shifted what we think of as fake news. Um, but a lot of people think it should be expanded even more so to include um, propaganda, conspiracy, the clickbait sort of sponsored content online. Um, and so we really need to think about how fake news is being used and, and applied to what kinds of media. You want to comment, John? No, I have no idea what to do about that. I, it's, just, it's, 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 it's so discouraging. Um, I'm at a loss. Well, and I mean, it's almost like, is there any way for us in a public policy sense to protect the gullible from these malicious operators? Or is it really back to what you've all been saying all along, critical readership and teaching people not to be so gullible, which seems just an awful lot harder. But. Well, I think civics classes in elementary, junior high, and high school would probably go a long way to solving this problem because you know what's real and what's not when you understand the way government works and what the parameters are. Um, but if you if you you know enter the realm of this 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 amorphous realm of news now with absolutely no understanding of American history, of American governmental institutions, of civic life, then it, you're, you're really um, pretty ripe for being misled. We have another caller on the line, Mike from Ellsworth. Go ahead with your question or comment. Good morning. Hey, it's Mike Joyce. Um, I'd like to think that uh, if Joe McCarthy had had better, decent, fair and balanced coverage, there wouldn't be so many commies around nowadays, you know. I was reading something interesting on the Media Matters website this morning about Bill O'Reilly, and they were talking about the the culture of Fox News, the kind of bitter, bullying, self-pitying victimhood thing they do there. The statement that uh, got me was, it's hard to win an argument with someone who's not tethered to the facts. You know, and uh, I want to thank you for your program this morning. Thank you. you. Think about that. And uh, I say make America bully again. (laughs) Thanks, Mike. (laughs) Um, Melissa, what do you think? Tethered to the facts. Yeah, I mean, I think this is something I've seen a lot um, at at colleges and, and libraries, thinking about what we consider to be truth. And there seems to be this weird emergence of considering something a false fact, and that can't actually exist. Um, but I think a lot of this, when we don't know what's true or not, stems from this overall distrust that we're finding, not only with news organizations, but various public institutions. We trust government less. We trust educators less. We trust, you know, scientists less. And so I think that there's a lot of fundamental um, issues happening, and the way we're seeing it play out is with I think the way we're seeing it play out most prominently is with news. I mean, how do we tell facts when we see them? I guess that's sort of a fundamental question. You know, mistrust of science and scientific data. We've talked about where experts fit and how you um, acknowledge someone to be a reliable expert. People have to have experience in the world. They have have to read widely 
and and have some historical background. I mean, I, I don't know when this all began, but I'll, I'll go back to Westmoreland. And who remembers General Westmoreland? Most people in this room do. I don't know about Melissa. We're but, old. <laughs> yeah. He lied about, you know, the body count in Vietnam. Pretty important thing to lie about, and uh, that's that's my generation's time. And I'm, I'm sure it goes back before then, and we've had so much so much this then. Yet we, you know, we, we survive as a democracy nevertheless because I think enough comes out to enough people that we've been, you know, been okay as a democracy. I think what's happening now is we don't know if we've gone too far to the other side. There isn't any way coming back because so much, there's so many more means to produce false news, fake news, and lies. So um, how do people tell? They're going to have to be smarter. They're going to have to think harder. They're going to have to work harder at it if they want to keep the democracy. Well, and that's um, sort of like they have to do that if they want to. But if they really want only to have their own beliefs confirmed, they're going to be able to find that confirmation out there, right, whether it's factual or not. Well, I think that's true, and it's always been true. Um, there have always been ideologues who are unconvinced by the facts. Um, I think it is uh, perhaps a larger percentage of our society now than it ever was before. And that's the really distressing thing is that, you know, how will we ever solve problems if we've lost our faith in institutions and we can't hear each other speak mm-hmm. and we've lost facts. Back quite a while ago, decades ago, if you wanted to get the John Birch newsletter or the Daily Worker, you had to go to a lot of trouble to get it. Now it's all of that and more is there in, you know, seven keystrokes. Yep, it's true. Melissa, do you want to chime in one more time? It looks like we've got another caller coming in, so we'll just stall for a second here until they get on the air. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, so one thing that, you know, I would always teach my students in in assessing a source critically is to triangulate. So if we read something, then read two other articles about it to see how, you know, this information is lining up. But one of the problems with, um, like, fake news, et cetera, is that, we have this era of aggregation, news aggregation, and secondary reporting, where there's a lot of, you know, a story breaks, then everybody else reports on that original story, and no one's doing their due diligence to see how accurate that original story was. And that's why you're seeing even fake news stories spread through credible organizations, or that's why you're seeing uh, Fox 25 in Boston fighting the independent in the U.K. for a story here that actually was a Twitter hoax. Yep. And so I think that's part of the problem as well. Listeners, if you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation now by calling toll-free 866-625-9378 or 469-0500. John from Orland is back on the line. Go ahead, John. Yeah, I just want to talk about triangulation for a second because um, Vanessa Otero put out a chart last year on bias, the uh, the liberal to conservative bias stream. And I think it's very valuable to, to look at the that um, chart and, and see where different organizations line up in the liberal to conservative bias. Uh, the ones in the center tend to be pretty well-known, CNN, USA Today, Reuters, AP, uh, BBC, NPR, uh, Al Jazeera, by the way, uh, Wall Street Journal, Economist, Guardian, they're all in the center. But another thing to think about, uh, because most people nowadays are listening more than reading, unfortunately, is an app called Hourly News, which brings out, its. it costs 99 cents, I think, but it's well worth it. It brings out uh, podcasts, five-minute podcasts, or some of them are, might be a little bit longer, of BBC, uh, ABC, 
VOA, Deutsche Welle, uh, Hong Kong Radio. It, it, the list is quite long, and you can select what you want to hear. It's very, very good because it, it, you can hear on the hourly basis what the news is and how different places are presenting it. What's the website for that, John? Well, it's called hourlynewsapp.com. Okay, great. I think one of the things that um, listeners can do is simply um, expand their universe of what they consume as news. So, for example, this past year, during the campaign, um, for those who don't know, John and I are married, so we get the same newspaper. Um, And we had a subscription to the New York Times and felt that the coverage of the presidential campaign was not all it should be. So we got a subscription to the Washington Post after reading it online for a little while, or up to 10 a month. And its stories, its choice of stories, the, the, the perspective of their stories, Their coverage was, I think, less ideological, broader. um, And between the two of them, we got a larger world of coverage. And you could compare the the stories. The the Washington Post would get on something faster. The New York Times would get on something in a different way. So just in that small kind of choice where you you double the daily newspaper that you're reading um, or you switch even can help you see that there are other ways um, that this news can be um, reported. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther, the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are John Christie, co-founder and senior editor for the Maine Center for Public Interest Reporting, Naomi Shalit, co-founder at the center as well, and Melissa Zimdars, assistant professor of communications at Merrimack College. Uh, If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation now by calling toll-free 866-625-9378 or 469-0500 if you're calling locally. We have another caller on the line, Susan from Southwest Harbor. Go ahead. Hi there, yes. Um, I'm another person who remembers Westmoreland and the body counts, and uh, I was just referring to that the other day with my son because we were talking about the mother of all bombs and, you know, how many ISIS people were killed, and I will say supposedly, and I said to him, you know, I remember Vietnam, and, uh, you know, how many Viet Cong were killed. And if you added them all up, it would be more people than, you know, populated the world at that time. And um, um, and still there were more. So, unfortunately, we're suspicious of what we hear. But what, what I was originally going to say, actually, has to do with supposed what they call um, debates or questions when they have kind of experts from either side on like CNN or MSNBC, um, and they interrupt each other all the time. I mean, there's they talk over each other. There's no space for actual discussions like you folks are having right now. So how do you ever glean information from all of this when even people who are presented as, you know, experts of different positions can't even speak? Um, and then that becomes the norm that we're just trying to make points with our, rather than trying to inform or understand a different point of view. I think that that's something that's very lacking right now is trying to understand a different point of view. Um, uh, I don't think the news, definitely the televised news, is helpful in that at all. Um, and then the other point about uh, the Wall Street Journal and the $40,000 closets. Yeah, I mean, the newspapers are so full of things that are not 
news, as is televised news. I mean, local news, you have a few murders, and then they talk about the cute puppies that were handed out at the mall or something. I mean, they'd never, really never talk about city council meetings or ordinances that might be up or things that would have to do with your life right now. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. there we go. I don't know. It's, but, con- it's, it's complicated. <laughs> well, I mean, no, thank you, Susan. I mean, there are two big things in here. He said, she said news, you know, one mm-hmm. side and the other, and whether they actually create a, a bigger understanding, and then the other was um, entertainment news. So who would like to jump in on either one of those, Melissa or John? Well, you know, the newspapers always had Dagwood, you know. We had crossword puzzles, and we had things about closets. I, that was a objectionable story, but the idea of those types of stories are fine. People come to the, to the newspaper for lots of reasons. One is the news, and that's the most important thing. But if they're not entertained, then they're not going to read the paper. And so we've always been both an informative uh, medium and also an entertaining medium. And I don't think there's anything anything wrong with that because uh, we all enjoy that part, of, you know, the crossword puzzle, whatever it may be. Um, but I think my, what I'm getting out of all this is that everybody's come with a great triangulation, reading two newspapers, not trusting your own biases, if you want to find out what's really happening and you want to put the effort in we've all talked about, you can do it. There is there is a solution to the problem, at least a, a substantial solution. The question is, the people, who wants to make this effort? And those who don't want to make this effort, what can anything be done about that? Do, what about that? I mean, I think that's sort of the big question. Melissa, do you have a, an idea? Yeah, I mean... I think that's the problem sometimes when we we talk about media literacy or information literacy. And I agree that we need, you know, we actually need to try that. And so everyone's exposed to that much earlier in life to learn how to analyze sources. But that's where I think the role of technology comes into play. Um, You know, companies like Google and Facebook are already categorizing technology and filtering technology in numerous ways. And I think that it has to be easier for a reader, listener, or watcher to know if they're actually coming across news. So right after the election, the number one Google News item for who won the popular vote was a fake news website that had only existed for a couple of weeks. And to me, that's throwing up a barrier that makes it very difficult for people who who probably aren't going to spend a lot of time triangulating and reading multiple newspapers. Um, So how can we remove barriers for for it to be easier for people to assess and, and get information. We have another caller on the line, Elaine from Surrey. Go ahead. Yeah, hi. Um, this is just a peripheral issue to the, the issue of news reporting that you're talking about. I only just tuned in, and I, I was triggered by the mention of uh, William Westmoreland, who I saw speak when I was at college at Orono. And it was, it was such a great experience to have him visit the campus. And after he spoke, he was put where really his feet were put to the fire by the student questions, and I think he was quite shaken uh, after the encounter with students. And what's going on at places like Middlebury today uh, I think is really detrimental, especially to the left, when people aren't allowed to speak and their, their ideas are not allowed to be challenged in the public sphere. And uh, I'd just like to hear you say something about that. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Do we value free speech, or do we only want to hear what we want to hear? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about it, Melissa? I hear you chuckling there. Yeah, I mean, I actually agree. Like, yes, it's yes to both because I value free speech enough to say that I don't think that fake news 
site should necessarily be blocked or banned um, because it's it's speech that has a right to exist in the same way that tabloids long have. Um, and, and, you know, fake speech lies are, are a form of protected speech in most aspects. But that doesn't mean that we have to, that doesn't mean we're obligated to provide it a platform um, or to circulate it, right? So trying to balance those protections um, while also acknowledging the limitations of those protections. And that's a little bit where you were talking after the last call about eliminating barriers. Um, And maybe Mm -hmm. you could just embellish on that a little bit more. Yeah, so some, so part of what I was trying to do even in this open sources project was to provide data for researchers and uh, computer programmers and other developers um, to figure out how to create technologies to alert people to the kinds of news or entertainment sources they're coming across. Um, and so that's that's one example. Librarians, right now, I'm also working with a group to try to flag articles to be fact-checked by, by librarians, right, the ultimate assessors of information, um, and that could feed back into platforms and help index the internet in different ways that are maybe more responsible. Um, And so there's a lot of different paths that we can think about um, that influence how we come across information. Um, And so I think those are things we have to explore as we talk about all of this. We have one last caller on the air, Catherine from Appleton. Um, We're running out of time, but you're the last one. Go ahead. Yeah, thanks. And then there is the no news, the no news. Fukushima happened, we're in our seventh year of four meltdowns, meltdowns. Chernobyl was encased. This is ongoing, and there's no news on it. The Ministry of Pop Propaganda, Mainstream News, which I really think is part of the CIA government, there's no news on this. This has been bathing our planet, going on seven years, and our oceans. Why is there no news on it? Thank you. Story selection, that's what we're talking about, right? Well, and I think Mm -hmm. you're talking about resources. Um, Newspapers and and news organizations used to have lots of people in foreign bureaus. They don't anymore. Um, So that may be one aspect of it. John, you can speak Mm -hmm. to this. But there's no conspiracy to keep big news stories out of the newspapers. Believe me, we're, we're, uh, they're all very competitive. They want to be the first ones of the story. So they haven't all gotten together and decided not to cover something important. They may not cover it well enough. They may not know about it. If they know about it, they're going to try to cover it. So th- there is no such conspiracy in the in the mainstream media, which and I say, thank God for the mainstream media. I'm part of the mainstream media. I'm proud of it. I don't want to be part of the crazy fringe media. Melissa? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's a matter of of what we consider to be newsworthy. And sometimes um, those ongoing stories aren't covered as often because the timely stories tend to be read more often and, and tend to get higher ratings. So there's there's an element of, of news organizations producing not always what people need, but what they want to hear, the, the most evolving events. And I think, you know, clearly to this caller, that's a source of frustration. Yep. And I think it's a legitimate source of frustration, but I disagree that that <laughs> means it's part of a, a broad conspiracy. And that's, I think the other... The case. The, the other thing I'd add, to go back to what we were talking about before the caller, um, but it could also be a reflection of this call. Um, uh, 
you were talking about having librarians vet stories um, help flag things I think it's important that we have trusted sources who can help us understand um, whether the standards are being met by certain um, news stories news organizations news outlets but I think we need to be careful that we not designate some sort of ministry of truth at the same time Mm-hmm. We're um, coming into the last few minutes, so I want to go around to each of you now and um, give you a chance to offer any parting thoughts. And to the extent that you can help us end up on a hopeful note and help people figure out how to solve this problem for themselves, I'd appreciate it. So, to Melissa, to you first. Sure. So, one, I tend to be a pretty skeptical and cynical person, but I've been talking about this at various libraries and schools in my area. And I've been talking to a lot of people who I fundamentally disagree with politically. And I feel like through talking about this, we've actually found a lot of common ground or have been able to see some of the critiques of either the mainstream media or the the conservative media sphere um, from the other side. And so I think even though I think (laughs) things feel very bleak, I do think that when we we can communicate and actually see each other as humans, that there is potential, and I, I think that we can we can do it if we choose to. Thanks, Melissa. Naomi, what about you? Oh, I was hoping to go last. Um, I, I would echo what Melissa says, which is part of what is wrong with what's going on in the media, and, and that includes us, is the closing of the American mind. And I think I, if I could urge people to do anything, it's to open your mind, read things that you don't agree with, search them out, find different perspectives, and um, you'll exercise your mind that way and probably come out a better news consumer. I've had the same experience. We, we go, we go, we speak to a lot of small groups, medium-sized groups, and 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 I, I know what their prejudices are when they come in. But when I go back, and Naomi goes back, we remind them about the role of a journalist to be independent, to be gutsy, to be courageous, to not have, as we say in my organization, there are no isms allowed in the main center of public journalism. Public journalism, there's no, the only ism allowed is journalism. No environmentalism, no liberalism, no conservatism, no libertarianism. We don't allow any of those isms, and they, even though I know they have their own ism in the audience, and they all do, they nod the head at, at that. They realize that journalists are not supposed to do that, and so I see that they do understand and want to do what we're supposed to do, and that's encouraging. Thank you so much. We are um, running out of time this morning. It was a great conversation. I'm just going to interrupt. The League of Women Voters rocks. Oh, thank you. You know, that's encouraging what you're doing, keeping this conversation going. And more people should listen and join. Well, um, let me tell you a little bit about that. Um, We're out of time this morning, but thank you to our guests, John Christie, co-founder and senior editor for the Maine Center for Public Interest Reporting, Naomi Shalit, co-founder at the Maine Center for Public Interest Reporting, and Melissa Zimdar's assistant professor of communication at Merrimack College. If you live in the Ellsworth area, we will be continuing this conversation live at Pat's Pizza on Wednesday, April 26th, beginning at 5.30 p.m., when our guests will be Earl Brecklin, editor of the Mount Desert Islander, Stephen Fay, managing editor of the Ellsworth American, and Josh Royland, assistant professor and class honors preceptor at, of journalism 
Journalism in the Department of Communication and Journalism and the Honors College at the University of Maine. It'll be a great conversation, and we'll be making it local. So please join us Wednesday, April 26th, 5.30 p.m. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Thank you to Amy Brown, our engineer today at WERU. Thank you to our listeners. Our website is lwvme.org for more information about this topic or to learn about shows in this series. You can email us at downeast at lwvme.org with your ideas for future shows. We'll see you here next month when our topic will be free trade, winners and losers in Maine. Thanks a lot. WERU is made possible by the generous support of our